this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, this is the first of our quarantine episodes. <laughs> good one. Oh, it's good that we do this remote. It is good. There really um, is no disruption for Jay us. Jay and so. I have been social distancing from each other this entire <laughs> podcast. So even when we were in the same city, we refused to be in the same room just to make sure that we never got sick uh, if one of us was ill. So, right. it'll you know, it's funny that I'm saying this now, but if something if, if this takes a, a bad turn, um, these episodes are just going to be sitting out there in the ether for some alien you know, civilization discovered in 10,000 years. And we'll be like, part of uh, them piecing together what happened. Yeah. Oh, well, these assholes were on a podcast joking about it. <laughs> Clearly, they didn't take it seriously enough. <laughs> we have different locations so they can triangulate, like, <laughs> what, when each other was affected. Right, exactly. Jay, this is a roundtable. This is our March roundtable. Back when we put up our poll... In January, to determine our February roundtable, we had a tie, and rather than break that tie, because we were sick of breaking ties, we just decided to make one episode for February and one episode for March, and then this ended up being our March episode. Our patrons at the board of directors level and steering committee level, they're the ones who get to pick the roundtable topics and then vote on what the subjects of those topics are going to be for this one. This is part of our series called sophomore slump revisited. Now we've done a bunch of these. We've done third eye blinds blue. We've done Veruca salts, uh, eight arms to hold you sponges, follow up record, uh, which I completely blanked on. What's the name of the second sponge record? Uh, wax ecstatic wax ecstatic yes there's been a couple other ones bush's razor blade suitcase and some other ones and this time immediately in the comments it was thrown out there that we should talk about dada who we've talked about a little bit on this podcast before and their 1994 sophomore record called american highway flower and at first i was like well the criteria we require is that they have to have at least a gold record on the first record. And lo and behold, they did. In fact, if you go to Wikipedia, it says they sold over 500,000. But if you go to Dada's website worldwide, they sold over a million copies of this record. And of course, they did have a big single, which was Disneyland. Uh, it spent uh, 10 weeks on the Billboard 200 chart, peaking at number 111. And I'm not sure if that's the album or the single. I have to do some additional research there at some point. Should have should have crossed all my T's and dotted my I's. But to help us to uh, discuss this record, determine if it really is a sophomore slump or if it's something that people should revisit, we have two previous guests joining us who were very enthusiastic about visiting this record. 
Uh, he was just on like two episodes ago, but we said, damn it, come on back. Whitney Bueller, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me again. And you were on the Third Eye Blind episode, correct, where we discussed Blue? I was. I researched the heck out of that so I didn't get toasted by the hosts. <laughs> and you've also brought to us Human Radio and the Tories along with the Caviar Record that we just did. So a, a an interesting collection of power popish records jane are like we like to now trace the um the uh, catalog of each guest and see where they're going with all of their picks some are very consistent and some are not so consistent which we'll see with the episodes coming up so also joining us he joined us for the opposite of a sophomore slump episode he joined us for the sophomore slump reversed episode that we did last year jeremy men welcome back thanks for having me and uh i volunteer to be the designated survivor should things go sideways <laughs> excellent just let me know if that's this, nice of you if this podcast loses atmosphere you're the you're the one who's got to steer the ship back to port or something like that i don't know i've been drinking a lot of merlot for the last couple of days. <laughs> oh. Got a big Carlo Rossi of Merlot. Just just drinking out of that jug. <laughs> um, you got you got snowed right now too, don't you? We, yeah. So yeah, wonderful. You know, we're 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 recording this obviously um earlier than the date it's it's publishing, but uh we got we got announced, hey, you're gonna be school your schools are gonna be closing. And we're like, cool. Um well you know, maybe this weekend we'll, you know, get outside and do some lawn work and we'll take the dogs for a walk. And then we get a snowstorm, <laughs> nonstop snow the, on Saturday. Just like, well, this is going to be an interesting quarantine or Ish. or or, uh, or um, social distancing that we're doing here. Um, so a little bit about this record, a little history on this. Uh, American Highway Flower came out in September of 1994 on IRS Records. It was produced by the band along with Jason Corsaro. It has been re-released in 2004. There was an uh, extended release on Blue Cave Records with three non-album bonus tracks. Does not indicate if they were previously released on singles or anything like that. It did chart uh, number 27 on the Billboard Modern Chart in 1994, but don't believe it. Uh, none of the singles that were released, which the promotional singles were Feet to the Sun and Feel Me, Don't You, which is an interesting choice. <laughs> Those both did not make any impact at radio. And so we're revisiting this as a sophomore slump. So let me start with you, Jeremy. Um, why were you interested in this record? How did you get interested in Dada? And when did you discover them? Uh, so um, obviously the... Um, I don't know if Disneyland was the first single off of that first album, but I think it was the first one that I heard. And I think before I could even go out and buy it, uh, I think they, uh, 97X started playing, uh, uh, some songs that I don't think were released as singles. Um, you would hear like, uh, uh, they either played Mary Sunshine Rain or Dog, I believe. Um, so I went out and got it, like fell in love with it immediately. And then, you know, got certain until their their third album, but uh, 
immediately regretted it after only seeing them twice on that tour. I wish I would have seen them more, especially with Mike Gurley's hand problems. It gets, it gets a little difficult to catch them. But yeah, I think I pretty much picked up on them as soon as I started hearing them on 97X and fell in love immediately. Whitney, what about you? When did you, when did you discover them? Uh, pretty much when they came out. Uh, I liked, well, wait a sec. Let's see. I heard Disneyland when it came on the radio, and I honestly wasn't a big fan of the song. Because to me, it's like one of those list songs, you know, where they just kind of like, remember that Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire? And remember that song was just like, they just listed stuff off. It really, I didn't really like the single that much. And it was the first single, by the way. Uh, and then I had a friend who was listening to it, uh, brought the CD to a, a audio store when he was buying some stereo equipment and he used it as a reference disc. And I heard the first few songs on that record and I was like, wow, this is really awesome. And, uh, been a fan ever since uh hearing the rest of the cd uh but not so much disneyland so i was there for the uh i was there for the initial uh push of data early on jay had you listened to any data oh well i mean i remember uh disneyland that was a pretty big yeah rock, rock radio single in this strange year of 1992 um <laughs> yeah. i think it kind of <laughs> was amongst many uh oddballs songs at the time that you look back and you're like, those all came out in the same year. That was so weird. But, uh, yeah, I remember WMMS, which was the big rock station in Cleveland playing the shit out of it. Um, I wasn't a huge fan. I was kind of found it grating. Um, so I didn't really dig into the band's catalog just based on really not liking that song a whole lot. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I was familiar with it. I honestly, I used to get this band mixed up with school of fish a lot. Oh yeah, I could see that. Like they had it to yeah. me. They had kind of a similar sound, like th- Three Strange Days. Yep. Kind of could sound. I could have probably confused that with Dada um, yeah. for quite some time. So, but I always recognized their logo. Like they, to me, they always had a very distinct logo. That when their CDs were in our radio station at Bowling Green, like I would recognize when there was an album out. But I don't necessarily recall this particular record when it came out i think the third record which is el subliminoso i don't know how to pronounce that i think it's el subliminoso el subliminoso that came out in 96 and i do kind of remember that probably because i wasn't a i wasn't a uh, a newbie at the radio station by then i was actually like assistant music director or something like that Let's get into talking about this record. Let's do it from the what works for us and what doesn't work for this album. So, Whitney, I'll start with you. What are the things that work for you on American Highway Flower? Uh, They're really talented musicians. I love the guitar. Um, And to me, they're two-part lead vocals. They're almost constant, right? The two-part harmonies they do. It's usually across the verses and choruses, and uh, I like that. I think that lends a very distinct sound. I mean, if I hear Dada, I usually – it's probably because I'm a fan, but I think that they're very original from that harmony perspective. Uh, and I didn't really like American Highway Flower that much. I've been listening to it a bit more lately, obviously, and um, there's a lot of different sonics to explore, and, and the guitar work is really great, like I said. And they, they, even though the songs, to me, it seems like it's more of a jam album, to me, not, not there aren't as many, like for me, there aren't as many poppy moments on the album 
but I do like the variety of like sounds and, and some of the different things that they do, uh, across the course of the whole record. So I'm not a, it's not a, it's not a favorite of mine for, as far as Dada goes, but I, but I still do like the record. Jeremy, for you, what works for you on this record? Uh, I think it's pretty much the same thing. Um, I mean, the, the, the vocal harmonies have always been the, I mean, that usually hooks me on, on any band if they do it well. Um, which I actually, I actually like that first school of fish album. So I'm going to put that out there. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that's probably, I mean, it's another band where, uh, they have some really cool vocal harmonies and, um, that was kind of the first thing that caught my attention. And then it was like a bonus that, uh, you know, Mike Gurley is just this awesome guitarist and, uh, um, and then Joey and, and Phil are, you know, a great rhythm section. So it was just a good consistent band. I mean, even the songs that disappoint me, uh, a little bit are still good songs on their own for the most part. It's just, uh, I mean, we'll get into that, but, um, I mean, I, I still, I probably listened to this album almost as much as I listened to the first one, but uh, it did kind of leave my rotation for quite a while, and then it just comes back every once in a while. They say you have your ways, your ways about you. Since you were you were not a huge fan of Disneyland, what were your thoughts on what worked for this record, if there were any? Yeah, I'll echo um, a lot of what was mentioned. You know, the guitar player it really stands out. I think the guitar work on this record is pretty remarkable. Um, great tones can be very can be restrained and tasteful, um, and let you know other instruments or really let the song breathe. But then can also launch into just blistering incredible guitar solos um that you know have all kinds of different tones and effects and do a really nice job of like thematically pulling in the melodies of the songs and was just really blown away by the guitar playing on this record i had no idea um that was part of the band to be honest i think what to me what's special about the vocal approach is that yeah they use harmonies that are beatlesque at times but they also just i think by having the dual lead vocal, you just get all this variety that's really, I think, at least for me, kept me engaged on some of these songs that are, you know, fairly long. Um, even though they're following somewhat pop formulas, I mean, they've got several songs here that are pushing five minutes, and um, they do get a little jammy. Um, but the, I think the the capabilities that they have with the vocal approach overall and just skill... You know, they can do things like trade off lead vocals or sing a lead vocal like full and full um, voice together, which is interesting. They can do like the layered harmony thing. They just have like every almost like vocal capability at their 
you know, at their disposal to go to, which is um, pretty fun to listen to. and uh, really, I think, pulls you through the record and constantly keeps it, I think, every track, you know, pretty interesting. Um, bringing in effects, singing in different styles, bringing in the harmonies, trading off, you know, leads between the two singers. It's it's pretty cool to hear. Um, so those were, you know, the, the two big things that I think um, pulled me through. I think the third thing that worked for me, you know, I've, I've listened to the first record briefly. I remember the single. This definitely feels like a 94 record in that, like, I hear maybe them being pushed and wanting to explore. You know, there's some dirtier tones. There's some things that are a little bit more, like, angsty and darker um, thematically, just attitude-wise, sonically. And, and I enjoy that. Like, I like hearing, like, you know, pop bands of the of the 90s that maybe, you know, start off in the early 90s or 80s and then be challenged by sort of what was going on musically and and I think exploring some things that maybe they had, wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I, I I hear a bit of that, um, which I appreciate. So I hear some little nods here and there, maybe some contemporaries of bands they were influenced by at the time. And just overall, just kind of a grittier, a little bit more, less um, reverbed out, delayed out you know, and less pretty sound, which I think works for this band better. comparison jellyfish in some respects with regards to the vocals and the musicality of their performance in terms of their alternative rock but really they're pushing like a psychedelic kind of sound in terms of some of the stuff that they're doing and it's it's not straightforward alternative rock in in the sense of what was happening in 1994 this is not bush or green day or something like that like this is a much more restrained and uh, you know, I hear like jazz influence in some of the guitar playing, yeah. And I kind of connect that as well to what stuff like what Roger Manning does or what John Bryan does with his work. There's just this. It seems like there's a there's a much deeper well of of what they're pulling from than some of the whatever their contemporaries would be at the time. Like this doesn't this does not sound like. 1994 alternative in terms of the the generic what people think of is 1994. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'd go. I don't think I would say jellyfish, but I would say that I do hear. Now that you mention it, it does have like a Jason Faulkner solo stuff feel to it, and I do think that there's 
when you say the record company might have pushed them a certain direction, I hear a few songs on this record that sound like they're trying to be like the Gin Blossoms were a year and a half or two years before them. You know what I mean? It, it's it's got uh, it's it's got a, a more mainstream sound on this than their first one. I think their first one was really all over the place. I never really got the feeling like I'm like, what is this band? Is this like a is this like a record of like four or five different bands playing songs or what? But this, there seems to be on American Highway Flyer, there seems to be a kind of a more, they seem to be, they have a direction they're trying to go. Um, it, the weird thing is, like Jay said, it, it feels like they want to stretch out and, and do some crazy things and be noisier and grungier and stuff. But there are some really nice um, pop songs on this album that remind me more of a, uh, really poppy stuff like Faulkner or or uh, or like I said, the Gin Blossoms, I guess. And even the harmonies are like I'm not. I think I'm stealing this from a website, but they're very like Simon and Garfunkel. Like you know, they're just it, it's weird. I, I, it's weird to hear this from like a mid '90s alternative band. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I, I totally agree. It's weird to hear this, like to where you place it in terms of the decade. In some ways, it sounds like earlier in in what they're doing, and sometimes it sounds like it should be much later. I don't know. I don't, they don't seem to fit this this category or this or this time period. Although there was stuff, you know, this is the same year as the Greys, Rochambeau, so there's you know similar stuff going on. But just their approach, you know, like take a song like. Um, all I am, you know, for the most part, there's, I don't know if we call it a pop song exactly, but there's like bluesy riffs going on that sound like <laughs> it could be like Gary Clark Jr. playing some of those riffs. You know what I'm talking about, Jay, with like some of that blues stuff that's going on. And then there's other songs that sound like um, much more uh, dreamy, uh, have much more dreamy approaches, like the first song, Ask the Dust, um, just totally different sound, and they're able to tackle it all in like their way and sort of unify it. Yeah, I hear a lot of different little nods here and there to different bands, um, but without it sounding like derivative, which is hard to do. So to me, Ask the Dust, I hear like the doors, honestly, like at least from a verse standpoint, hmm. maybe not a chorus standpoint, but like to me, when I hear the jazzy kind of take there it, it felt very doorsy to me um must be why i don't like that song <laughs> yeah, it's at the oh, baseline. Hey. uh but then pretty girls make graves i mean there's this awesome slide guitar work all over that and then the yeah beatles harmonies and then i like real soon i hear a little bit of like hmm this reminds me like voc- vocally how he's approaching it like maybe a little bit like smashing pumpkins would sing
bunch of different things going on here you know some of the strat stuff sounds a little pink floydy like there's little pieces and parts here and there that made me think of a lot of you know feats of the sun i was thinking of like tears for fears like just melodically you know what was going on there oh so my it gosh just, you kind of you kind of nailed that too jeez <laughs> there's just like all these little pieces and parts of different uh, styles and bands and you're right tim like they're able to bring. Maybe it's because it's only it's mainly two guys, right? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a three piece. Three piece. But yeah, it's two. Maybe singers. when you get it down to like that few people, you know, it makes it a easier to explore space but keep it cohesive because you're if you're staying true to the format, you're almost like putting a constraint on yourself that ultimately funnels it all through the same three people. Thus, you know, it sounds of the same album, same band, same music. Um, which is, I think makes it, you know, work as a record. What you were, uh, what you're saying about just hearing little bits and pieces that remind you of other bands, even on a very microscopic level, um, like, uh, the song, all I am, for instance, there's a part in the solo. It's just a tiny little piece, um, where he uses the, the wah pedal and it, it sounds like, uh, like Kirk Hammett on the black album from Metallica. Mm. Yeah, uh, it immediately reminded me of something from a solo on one of those songs, and then and when I hear it, it makes me think of the first album because there's like one part in "Mary Sunshine Rain" that sounded like a uh, helmet to me, mm-hmm. just very brief, like this guitar tone sounded like helmet, and I was just so uh, yeah. I mean, you hear these little bits and pieces uh, that re- remind you of other stuff, but then uh, as a whole, they're definitely their own their own thing. Well, that I, course in "All I Am" was like that's where I got the gin blossoms from, especially like really heavy and then that goes from that sing-songy chorus into some crazy meandering in the middle of the song and yeah it's it's that song is all over the place i'm still not sure how much i like that song but uh, i'll give it credit for how different it is and i think we're psychically linked because i was thinking of jason faulkner as well as Ah. soon as as soon as he mentioned uh jellyfish i was like well more of a jason faulkner thing maybe with uh Some more blues guitar. Dude, in that's there. what happens when when uh, uh, they tell you uh, when Tim tells you to go first. Then he, he that's, you, know, <laughs> you get to be the smart one. Then um, is Pretty Girls Make Graves the uh, where the band Pretty Girls Make Graves got their name from? I'm assuming, or is there another reference to that? Uh, I good question. I assumed it was some sort of just pop culture reference, but I don't know. Yeah, I think me? I've heard it in like other like like movies and stuff like that even before this album. So I, I think it's just an expression like a, a something that they just decided to use for the song title or make the song about it. I should say if we ever do our, our, our two thousands podcast and we review, uh, I would love to do good health to, uh, to cover. That's a great record. We can ask, uh, one of the band members what the uh what the deal is what does not work for you guys on this record jeremy i'll start with you once again i'll just say that i i I love the record i'll listen to the thing from beginning to end but i do feel like there's a few songs like i feel like the back half kind of loses you like there's some good songs on the back half but i don't think it's as consistent as the front half i i feel like sf bar 63 is is uh kind of incomplete like the vocal melody on it, it's just the verse vocals 
uh, it's just kind of iffy for me. I mean, I, I still like it. I'm not going to stop listening to it. I'll still sing along with it. But um, I just feel like they they kind of they could have changed the sequencing on this and maybe even cut one song and it would have worked a lot better. Um, but that's it. I mean, there's nothing else about it. Like, there's nothing else about the overall performance that I don't like. It's just the the sequencing. I think. Whitney, what about you? Is there anything that does not work for you on this record? Yeah. So the last two songs, I and Heaven and Nowhere, um, pretty ordinary uh, to me. I don't, I don't skip them, but I don't really enjoy those last two songs very much. I would think, uh, I would say that I'm not big on the lead track, As the Dust. Um, it seems like it's almost more of a closer to me. It's it's kind of the same weird choice as Darina was on the debut. I did, I don't like Darina as a as a as a starter for their uh, for their debut either. So that might be just me. Um, I tend to like the last half of the record, at least the middle of the record, more than I like uh, the very beginning. I, I don't know why. I like I like eight track. I like Green Henry. I like Go Go. But I'm not big on real soon. I'm not big on ask the dust. Um, I don't think this is as consistent as the first album. And the first album, you have uh, great songs to me like Dog and Mary Sunshine Rain and Surround and Timothy. I could go on. Um, this album's just not as strong that way for me. Okay, Jay, what about you? What doesn't work? Uh, I th- some of the slower tempos drag the record down for me so the middle section starts to get a little long there's some tracks there in the middle that you know there's two pushing or over five minutes another pushing five four almost five like there's four to six tracks in the middle there that they're not bad songs it just starts to drag and i think some of the songs would benefit from pushing the tempo a little bit more yeah um when they get to um, track nine, SF bar 63, like it kicks in pretty good there. And I think the rest of the record, um, despite, you know, maybe the material not being necessarily better or worse, I think that song helps pick that section of the record up and kind of carry you through to the end. So it's really that middle section. I, I like this feels a little bit ex, experimental and like um, I think maybe Jeremy had mentioned it was jammy. Um, I can I can kind of hear that. It feels a little like less bound to maybe like trying to write a hit song uh, or a radio another radio song, which I, I kind of like. Um, that's where I would I would make the comparison to maybe um, Jason Faulkner or Jellyfish and that. You know, it's all this talent, all this pop sensibility, obviously well-versed in, in the history of, of pop and rock music. But 
you know, trying some different stuff, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit here and there. There's parts of, you know, when they do that, they appreciate. And then the other aspect of it is you end up with songs that are five minutes long, which maybe they don't all need to be five minutes long. They can yeah. have edited them down and still, you know, experimented a little bit. So that's really my biggest criticism of, of the record is just uh, just the length and the tempos. I just feel like this this album suffers from CD bloat like really bad. It's almost 60 minutes. And you mentioned it like eight of the 13 songs are 450 or longer between 450 and, and 530. And I think I feel like a lot of those could have been shorter, like or, or this album could have been 10, 11 songs. I really I don't love their slow stuff like Scum is an example of a song where I it's like a there's they may mention like Rush, which I assume is Rush Limbaugh. And there's a political aspect to that song, and I just did not want to hear it more. Like I got it the first time, and I didn't really need to hear it again. Like it's it's not interesting musically enough to make me want to go back to it, and the lyrics are kind of outdated in some respects. So I mean, they're not completely, but I just it's it's dated because there's that reference to there. So I know what he's talking about, and I just did not want to go back to that song over and over again, even though it's only three 30. You don't want to uh, revisit vintage uh, Rush Limbaugh. No, I, I don't. <laughs> you, you didn't enjoy that. Okay. Weird. No. Like the TV show, I guess. My, I had a, <laughs> well, I had a they, grandfather who liked that. So I did not care for it. The other, the other problem with, with that song in particular, I mean, I, I don't generally skip it and I, I, you know, I kind of hate Rush Limbaugh, so I enjoy hearing it. But anybody say anything derogatory, that's fine. But it's it's just kind of a bummer because uh, the you know the drums are are pretty much not there, and um, it just would be nice if they're going to take the drums out if they could do a little bit more uh, musically with it, um, or just make it a lot shorter than it was. Uh, but there's a it kind of goes into a, kind of a theory that I have about the album and and why it ended up performing the way it did, but I can get into that when we get to our final verdicts, I guess. Okay. So I have a question. They picked Feel Me, Don't You as a single. That seems like a bad idea. Yeah, I didn't even know they did that. That that does seem like, I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, what the hell? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's what it says on Wikipedia. I mean, I mean, maybe Wikipedia is wrong. But Were they trying to be bad guys, maybe? You know, trying to be like tough guys. Yeah, well, like, <laughs> hey, people think we're we're kind of you know soft because of the, you know, the vocal harmonies and the subject matter. So let's let's have something where we drop a bunch of f bombs. We're not soft. Did yeah. it uh did it get censored? Did they like do a censored version of it? Or something? I, I don't know. I'm gonna look that up right now. Yeah, on that other website, on their website, they don't mention that it was a single. They say, "Ask the dust and feet to the sun" were the first singles. I think that "Feel Me, Don't You" may have just been like a per, it was on a, like a promotional single for the album, but it wasn't like a single single. So like maybe something that they put out uh, before they even started sending albums out to uh, to, to the stations. Yeah, yeah it, that it, is that's a weird choice. If you go to um, Discogs, they do have a "Feel Me, Don't You" promo CD single. There's an album version. There's a clean version, which is even longer for some reason than the album version. And then there is a bonus track 
or or a B-side called Stretch Annie, which is not on the record. Why would the per- why would the clean version be longer? That's strange. Four extra seconds of not swearing. Well, uh, they 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 use multiple words to replace the word that they took yeah, out. Uh, gotcha. Got, gosh darn it! Don't you touch me or something yes. like that. Uh, they did release. It, it does appear that they released "All I Am" as a single you could buy, because that is listed on there with three demos slash outtakes. And then Feet to the Sun was a promo single, no bonus tracks, and that's it. So that's interesting. And then I guess there was a there was a there was an EP released around this time called the Dadaist Dadaist Collection, which collected all of the B sides from the record. Which is a very nineties thing to do. To put out a, a CD EP of a promo EP for just radio stations of B sides. Like, what are they going to do with that? Are they going to play B sides for an album that's not going to get played in the f- first place? For the, mo- I, I don't know. That's that's well, a waste of CD printing. It seems like, but well, I, I can. I'm I'm almost completely certain that the only two songs that I heard from this album um, on WOXY. Uh, I think the first single was Green Henry, as far as what they played, and then the second one was um, All I Am. It may have been the other order, but I feel like Green Henry was first, and then it was All I Am, and then that was it. Like I heard nothing else from this album on the radio after probably 1995. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, here in Minneapolis, the only thing I ever heard was All I Am, because um, I remember listening to the record, and when I hit SF Bar 63, I was like... I lo- I loved that song because it it the lo-fi vocals I loved that and I like I'm not a harmonica guy in the least but it's got this cool harmonica versus guitar solo in it and uh, then then they followed it up with a track and then Green Henry and I would have remembered Green Henry if it had been on the radio because for me those three songs are where I like the album the most um, so I'm quite certain the only thing I heard was All I Am before I actually bought this so here's the other weird thing. The following year, they put out a new single. I think it's a new single. It's called I'm Feeling Nothing, which is not on this record. The B-sides were Scum, Feel Me Don't, Feel Me Don't You, and Darina. And that seems... So that's... um, I think that that might have been them just trying to cash in on... uh... That song was put on the Brady Boy. Uh, the, oh my goodness, what am I thinking here? The Brady Bunch um, uh, movie soundtrack. It was like the oh, opening song in okay. that movie. And uh, but I think it was recorded during the same sessions as the rest of this album. And if that's the case, that's really kind of blowing my mind because I would think they could cut a, you know, one of these like five minute songs, and put that song on. It's only like two and a half minutes and. You know, like take something low energy and replace it with that, and it really would have done done this album a service. It's kind of bumming out, right? So what? This comes out in '94. What is it that I have a hard time hearing a single that would make the radio in '94, like a blatant, obvious single like Disneyland? Is that the thing that's that gives it that sophomore slump tag? What do you guys think? My theory is a little bit deeper 
Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna save it for last because I think I'm gonna draw some criticism <laughs> for it. Okay. Uh, uh, I couldn't tell. I could not. I'm looking at the list right now. I could not pick a single that's as I'll call it a novelty, like Disneyland, which were those were the hot things back then, like you mentioned earlier. Um, I don't know. All I am seems to me like it would be a single if it didn't have all that other stuff going on. You know what I mean? And I I like the song, but um, I can't think of any other thing on here. Like there's really, like I said, like Go Go and Green Henry are really poppy songs, but they don't, they're not what was being played back then for singles. Right. So looking, looking at this list, I have no idea what would be a single. I think if you were going to pull off a single in this style of those songs, it needed to have more guitar crunch. Like if you're going to go for a pop vocal in that sense, like think about like hey jealousy and what the pop what the guitars sound like on that or like a matthew sweet song like those are the songs that are like poppy but are breaking through at this time mm-hmm. if you're not going to go with like a more guttural sort of vocal in mm-hmm. the in the sound garden or alice in chains or pearl jam sound jay any any thoughts on why this wouldn't break through i'm with that point you just made tim i think it's either the production is just a little too eclectic or not straightforward enough for the time. And yeah. then I think some of the songs, yeah, either through more to crunch or tempo or intensity, you know, could be more rock radio singles. Uh, for example, SF Bar 63, you know, I think that's I actually here. Afghan wigs, Greg Dooley, like in the way he delivers that verse, but it doesn't have that same like intensity, you know, it's more of a kind of a laid back, um, guitar groove and not like an immediate, like, you know, in your face kind of intense intensity. So I, I think there's, there's a couple songs, um, that either could be edgier or just overall have more punch if they wanted to really make a radio hit, you know, I don't know what the, goals were for the record um it certainly doesn't sound to me like they were that super focused on that all right jeremy lay it on us so <laughs> while i do agree that the album is missing a a novelty song that you know something that drew people in on the first album which i guess um they would have i mean it would make sense like hey let's let's have at least our first or second single be something like that i mean i i do agree that's missing that i do agree that it's missing some of the consistency that the first first album had but i feel like this album was a lot more down than that first album i mean the first album had timothy and they had some other kind of sad songs but a lot of the sad stuff was a little bit more romantic whereas this is just legitimately sad um and we're I think at this point when this album came out, we're less than six months removed from Kurt Cobain's suicide. And and I feel like when he when he killed himself in April, I think it, it started to cause this shift in what you could sell uh, in alternative radio. I mean, if you were an established band like Alice in Chains, you could still do something dark and down because that's what people expected. But the the first album had a lot more of a fun feel to it. And this one didn't. And I feel like that's, while there are other things detracting from it, I feel like that was really what sunk them. They never even got a third single out of it, really. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, IRS was 
starting their tailspin at this point. I think they get one more album 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 out of them, and I just I feel like like that um, that April 1994 just had this profound effect on on how things could be marketed um, after that, and uh, you know that's kind of what sunk their ship on this one. Interesting. It's a much broader perspective in terms of uh, in terms of this record and its lack of success compared to the first record. hadn't hadn't considered that time frame, but that does make sense. Well, let's figure it out now. Let's let's lay down the the judgment of is this a sophomore record that people should revisit, or is a slump that should be left to uh to its own devices to to what is that i'm trying to think of the phrase and i can't it's it's dangle in the wind on its own that's not what i wanted to say but (laughs) what (laughs) too much of that merlot what were you too much (laughs) it's it's the carlo rossi merlot oh my goodness which you'll find in jug form for only 11.99 right there with box wine right we're, we're, no, this is one step above box wine. All right, sorry. Box wine is when like you go to the beach and you don't want to actually <laughs> have a cap to unscrew, so you just have that little plunger thing that you push, that, and then the wine comes out. Yeah, somebody it, holds it over your mouth where you're laying in the exactly. Because if you have yeah. a screw, you have a screw cap, you could lose that. Step on it. Get exactly. Cut your foot. Yep. Yeah, you got to be careful. You know, beach <laughs> rules. So and beach etiquette. So you want to have the box for the beach. That's my motto. Box for the beach. <laughs> um, is this a sophomore slump or is it not? Jeremy, what do you think? Uh, it's a sophomore slump that you should definitely revisit. Okay. So it's redeemed is what you're saying. You're yeah, redeeming it's like it. It's, it's, it's not as good as the first album, but it's still worthy of – it's still a worthy album. Whitney, what do you say? Is yeah, this redeemable? So- Yes, it, it is, and it's it's my least favorite Dada record of the first four, uh, because I like this band so much. I've been listening to this a lot lately. This thing, again, it's it's my least favorite of the four, but it's a listener, and it's like you can, like Jeremy said, I listen to it from start to finish, and I don't skip anything. And there's sounds to hear. There's interesting things going on here. It may not be like you know, Whitney's favorite sing-along songs or whatever, but this thing is fun to, fun to listen to. And it, it, I always hear something different, which is like a lot of what my favorite albums have. I couldn't tell you what my favorite Dada record is. Maybe the third one, the El Subliminoso, but it can change from one day to the next. And I have been actively listening to this band for a long time. Um, so this is a sophomore slump from a sales perspective. And I don't think people have the patience to listen to an album like this um, because there's no singles on it. So, yes, it is a sophomore slump, but it is a worthy. If we're doing it, it is a worthy album for sure. All right. Jay, where do you land? Well, obviously, it's not as commercially successful. And that may be by design. And to me, uh, I think it's a worthy album. I I would definitely revisit this, and I would revisit it before the first record just from a tone to me this it also sounds more timeless like i don't 
necessarily hear like 1994 production and mm-hmm. 1994 songwriting. So to me, it's a, it's a little bit more timeless than the first record is, which is very, to me, very early 90s sounding. Um, so, you know, I think it's a worthy album. And I think creatively, um, it may be uh, actually superior to the first to me. I agree with you. I think that this, in a in the overall sense, is a redeemed sophomore slump. In terms of if you take the whole record, it has some flaws, which I mentioned. I think it's a, I think it succumbs to the CD format in terms of its length. It could have used a little trimming, both in terms of how long the songs are, and then also in terms of just how many songs are on the record. But in terms of what is going on musically and the diversity, especially the guitar playing, I feel like just from the guitar playing you can hear so much interesting stuff going on that if you're a guitar player, you definitely want to check this out or if you appreciate really interesting guitar playing. And then also from a vocal standpoint, there's so much stuff going on vocally that is just so far ahead of what was going on at that time with regards to, you know, structuring melodies and, 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 and harmonies and that kind of stuff. There was very few bands that were pulling off what, what they were doing. So it doesn't have a killer single. You have to you have to like this from the perspective of they're just a good collection of songs, but you're not going to get that massive hook that you're going to get on the first record with Disneyland. So I I think it's redeemable. I don't have we done a sophomore slump where we didn't redeem the re- record? I think we've redeemed them all, haven't we? I think so. I'm trying to I well, I think the theme we're finding is that at least ones we've talked about that people have, I think, brought to the table worth discussing is that they're creatively ambitious, the yeah. ones we're, we're touching on, and maybe more so than their debuts, and that makes them mm-hmm. not as commercially uh, easy to market and successful. Yeah. We need to thank our guests for joining us, Jeremy and Whitney. Thank you guys for both uh, coming on and spending some of your uh, quarantined Sunday evening <laughs> with us. Uh, good luck in the Badlands out there. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, there's nothing stopping us from going full road warrior. I mean, even stylistically, like we could all just get shoulder pads and mohawks and just really. I just want to drive it. along people and go mediocre. Uh, I want the the guitar that shoots flames out of the. Yeah. Yes. How awesome would that be? I mean, what are we waiting for? It's going to happen oh, anyway, dude. I am I am totally going to pimp out my Kia this week with some <laughs> with some badass spikes and some chain mail and some and some barbed wire. I'll be ready to roll. <laughs> well, you let me know how it goes. Okay, then I'll see it. I see you. See, if we're I at the go tip of the spear here in Ohio. I don't know if you know if you know that, but uh, this is where all this is where all the all the craziness is going down. They shut, they shut the bars down. I think I'm reading it as living in Texas for a while. I'm realizing that um, I'm a rule follower, and I think most Ohioans are rule followers. Yeah, it's the Midwest. <laughs> We're polite mo- rule followers. This is what you're supposed to do. You do this and this and this, and then when people tell you to do stuff, you do it. Exactly. In Texas, they're like, what? I'm putting up a fence. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Maybe just a big sign that says "Hell is real" or "Grandpa's <laughs> cheese barn," something to 
get him used to it. They yeah. really, I, I have, I'm surprised that they have not asked the buffets to close at this point because I drive by a, a Golden oh Corral and I'm like, how is that not closed right now? That seems like an epicenter of bad ideas it is, it, from both a food perspective and a contagion perspective. Well, right. the theory is if you eat there, you're probably immortal anyway. It's true. So, it's kind of the Keith Richards perspective. Right. Okay. I guess I get that. Everything is so saturated in fats and processed foods. You're just you're just lining yourself with a layer of protection. If you would like to be like Jeremy and Whitney and help us pick our our roundtables, you can join us over at Patreon, whether it's at the board of directors or steering committee level or, or whatever uh we have slots open you can pick our round tables you can uh choose our 80s episodes we're gonna have we've just got a whole bunch of new suggestions for our 80s episodes we're gonna be throwing those into the hopper and in april we'll have a new 80s episode for people to check out and you get cool swag like t-shirts and stickers and all that fun stuff you can also if 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 you just want to test the water we have the two dollar level where you just you join us you get to vote in our polls you get our stickers along with that and you get to pick every month an album for us to review based on a poll of what's been suggested over at digmeoutpodcast.com at the album suggestion box and then of course mentioning box we have our new box newsletter that goes out every month every sorry every week because jay and i have a lot of time on our hands right now so we're going to be doing reviews of new records, old records, records that don't even exist yet. We're going to make up records to review. We're going to talk about. <laughs> we're going to talk about the nope. third Mad Season record that never got made. Hey, if it's going to come out, we'll be the first people to tell you about it with our uh, exactly. new release calendar. That is <laughs> driving me mad trying to find where the new records are. Every week, I'm like, I find it's something that was released like three weeks ago that I had no idea. Right. It's like, oh, this was only mentioned on Instagram. Uh, okay. <laughs> like, I'm actively looking for these records w- every week, and I I am still not able to find them all. So, so send, your, send your emails to digmeoutpodcast uh, uh, at gmail.com. If you have a tip on a new record that's going to be released, uh, let us know. This is our tip line for new records. You might hear of them out in the wild. We'd love to know, especially if there's, you know – crowdsourcing going on kickstarter we don't know about those things because they're not always listed at wikipedia or or metacritic or all music or where have you so also oh i forgot apple podcasts leave us some feedback there awesome jeremy whitney thank you again this was fun yep thanks you're always welcome back always great see you next week i don't know what we're doing but just show up We'll tell you. We'll tell you five minutes before what we're doing. We'll do a speed round. All right, for Jay and Tim, we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Dig Me Out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.